Chapter Six of Army Life in a Black Regiment. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by F. N. H. Army Life in a Black Regiment by Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Chapter Six: A Night in the Water. Yes, that was a pleasant life on picket, in the delicious early summer of the South. And among the endless flowery forests of that blossoming isle, in retrospect, I seem to see myself adrift on a horse's back amid a sea of roses. The various outposts were within a six-mile radius, and it was a long, delightful gallop, day and night. I have found a faint impression that the moon shone steadily every night for two months, and yet I remember certain periods of such dense darkness that, in riding through the wood paths, it was really unsafe to go beyond a walk. For a fear of branches above and roots below, and one of my officers was once shot at by a rebel scout who stood unperceived at his horse's bridle. To those doing outpost duty on an island, however large, the mainland has all the fascination of forbidden fruit, and on a scale bounded only by the horizon. Emerson says that every house looks ideal until we enter it, and it is certainly so if it be just the other side of those hostile lines. Every grove in that blue distance appears enchanted ground, and yonder loitering grey-black leading his horse to water in the furthest distance makes one thrill with a desire to hail him, to shoot at him, to capture him, to do anything to bridge this inexorable dumb space that lies between. A boyish feeling, no doubt, and one that time diminishes without effacing. Yet it is a feeling which lies at the bottom of many rash actions in war, and of some brilliant ones. For one, I could never quite outgrow it, though restricted by duty from doing many foolish things in consequence, and also restrained by reverence for certain confidential advisers whom I had always at hand, and who considered it their mission to keep me always on short rations of personal adventure. Indeed, most of that part of entertainment in the army devolves upon scouts detailed for the purpose, volunteer aides de camp, and newspaper reporters, other officers being expected to be about business more prosaic. All of the excitements of war are quadrupled by darkness, and as I rode along our outer lines at night and watched the glimmering flames which, at regular intervals, starred the opposite river shore, the longing was irresistible to cross the barrier of dusk and see whether it were men or ghosts who hovered round those dying embers. I had yielded to these impulses in boat adventures by night, for it was a part of my instructions to obtain all possible information about the rebel outposts. And fascinating indeed it was to glide along noiselessly paddling with a dusky guide through the endless intricacies of those southern marshes, scaring the reed birds which wailed and fled away into the darkness, and penetrating several miles into the ulterior between hostile fires where discovery might be death. Yet there were drawbacks as to these enterprises, since it is not easy for a boat to cross still water even on the darkest night without being seen by watchful eyes, and moreover. The extremes of high and low tide transform so completely the whole condition of those rivers that it seems very nice calculation to do one's work at precisely the right tune. To vary the experiment, I had often thought of trying a personal reconnaissance by swimming at a certain point whenever circumstances should make it an object. The opportunity at last arrived, and I shall never forget the glee with which, after several postponements, I finally rode forth a little before midnight. On a night which seemed made for the purpose, I had, of course, kept my own secret 
and was entirely alone. The great southern fireflies were out, not haunting the low ground merely like ours, but rising to the loftiest treetops with weird illumination, and anon hovering so low that my horse often stepped higher to avoid them. The dewy Cherokee roses brushed my face, the solemn Chuckwill's widow croaked her incantation, and the rabbits raced phantom-like across the shadowy road. Slowly, in the darkness, I followed the well-known path to the spot where our most advanced outposts were stationed, holding a causeway which thrust itself out far across the separating river, thus fronting a similar causeway on the other side, while a channel of perhaps three hundred yards once traversed by a ferry-boat rolled between. At low tide this channel was the whole river, and the broad oozy marshes on each side, at high tide the marshes were submerged, and the stream was a mile wide. This was the point which I had selected. To ascertain the numbers and position of the picket on the opposite causeway was my first object, as it was a matter on which no two of our officers agreed. To this point, therefore, I rode, and dismounting after being duly challenged by the sentinel at the causeway head, walked down the long and lonely path. The tide was well up, though still on the flood, as I desired, and each visible tuft of marsh-grass might, but for its motionless, have been a prowling boat. Dark as the night had appeared, the water was pale, smooth, and phosphorescent, and I remember that the phrase, Wan Water, so familiar in the Scottish ballads, struck me just then as peculiarly appropriate, though its real meaning is quite different. A gentle breeze, for which I had hoped for a ripple, had utterly died away, and it was a warm, breathless southern night. There was no sound but for the faint swash of the coming tide, the noises of the reed-birds in the marshes, and the occasional leap of a fish, and it seemed to my overstrained ears as if every footstep of my own must be heard for miles. However, I could have no more postponements, and the thing must be tried now, or never. Reaching the farther end of the causeway, I found my men couched, like black statues behind the slight earthwork there constructed. I expected that my proposed immersion would rather bewilder them, but knew that they would say nothing as usual. As for the lieutenant on that post, he was a steady, matter-of-fact, perfectly disciplined Englishman, who wore a Crimean medal, and never asked a superfluous question in his life. If I had casually remarked to him, Mr. Hooper, the General has ordered me on a brief personal reconnaissance to the planet Jupiter, and I wish you to take care of my watch, lest it should be damaged by the procession of the equinoxes. He would have responded with a brief, All right, sir, and a quick military gesture, and have put the thing in his pocket. As it was, I simply gave him the watch, and remarked that I was going for a swim. I do not remember ever to have experienced a greater sense of exhilaration than when I slipped noiselessly into that placid water, and struck out on the smooth, eddying current for the opposite shore. The night was so still and lovely, my black statues looked so dreamlike at their posts behind the low earthwork, the opposite arm of the causeway stretched so invitingly from the rebel main, the horizon glimmered so low around me, for it always appears lower to a swimmer than even to an oarsman, that I seemed floating in such concave globe, some magical crystal, of which I was in the enchanted centre. With each little ripple of my steady progress, all things hovered and changed. The stars danced and nodded above. Where the stars ended, the great southern fireflies began, and closer than the fireflies, there clung round me a halo of phosphorescent sparkles from the soft salt water.
Had I told any one of my purpose, I should have had warnings and remonstrances enough. The few negroes who did not believe in alligators believed in sharks. The skeptics as to sharks were orthodox in respect to alligators, while those who rejected both had private prejudices as to snapping turtles. The surgeon would have threatened intermittent fever, the first assistant rheumatism, and the second assistant congestive chills. Non-swimmers would have predicted exhaustion, and swimmers cramp, and all of this before coming within bullet range of any hostilities on the other shore. But I knew the folly of most alarms about reptiles and fishes. Man's imagination peoples the water with many things which do not belong there, or prefer to keep out of his way if they do. Fevers and congestions were the surgeon's business, and I always kept people to their own department. Cramp and exhaustion were dangers I could measure, as I had often done. Bullets were a more substantial danger, and I must take the chance. If a loon could dive at the flash, why not I? If I were once ashore, I should have to cope with the rebels on their own ground, which they knew better than I. But the water was my ground, where I too had been at home from boyhood. I swam as swiftly and softly as I could, although it seemed as if the water never had been so still before. It appeared impossible that anything uncanny should hide beneath that lovely mirror, and yet when some floating wisp of reed suddenly coiled itself around my neck, or some unknown thing drifting deeper coldly touched my foot, it caused that undefinable shudder which every swimmer knows, and which especially comes over one at night. Sometimes a slight sip of brackish water would enter my lips, for I naturally tried to swim as low as possible, and then would follow a slight gasping and contest against choking that seemed to me a perfect convulsion, for I suppose the tendency to choke and sneeze is always enhanced by the circumstances that one's life may depend on keeping still, just as yawning becomes irresistible where to yawn would be social ruin, and just as one is sure to sleep in a church if one sits in a conspicuous pew. At other times my unguarded motion would create a splashing which seemed, in the tension of my senses, to be loud enough to be heard at Richmond, although it really mattered not, since there are fishes in those rivers which make as much noise on special occasions as if they were misguided young whales. As I drew near the opposite shore, the dark causeway projected more and more distinctly, to my fancy at least, and I swam more softly still, utterly uncertain as to how far in the stillness of air and water my phosphorescent course could be traced by eye or ear. A slight ripple would have saved me from observation. I was more than ever sure, and I would have whistled for a fair wind as eagerly as any sailor, but that my breath was worth to me more than anything it was likely to bring. The water became smoother and smoother, and nothing broke the dim surface except a few clumps of rushes and my unfortunate head. The outside of this member gradually assumed to its inside a gigantic magnitude. It had always annoyed me at the hatter's from a merely animal's bigness, with no consummate contents to show for it, and now I detested it more than ever. A physical feeling of turgescence and congestion in that region, such as swimmers often feel, probably increased the impression. I thought with envy of the Aztec children, of the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow, of Saint Somebody with his head tucked under his arm. Plotinus was less ashamed of his whole body than I of this inconsiderate and stupid appendage. To be sure, I might swim for a certain distance under water, but that accomplishment I had reserved for a retreat, for I knew that the longer I stayed down, the more surely I should have to snort like a walrus when I came up again, 
and to approach an enemy with such a demonstration was not to be thought of. Suddenly a dog barked. We had certain information that a pack of hounds was kept at a rebel station a few miles off, on purpose to hunt runaways, and I had heard from the negroes almost fabulous accounts of the instinct of these animals. I knew that, although water baffled their scent, they yet could recognize in some manner the approach of any person across the water as readily as by land, and the vigilance of all dogs by night every traveller among southern plantations has ample demonstration. I was now so near that I could dimly see the figures of men moving to and fro upon the end of the causeway, and could hear the dull knock when one struck his foot against a piece of limber. As my first object was to ascertain whether there were sentinels at that time at that precise point, I saw that I was approaching the end of my experiment. Could I have once reached the causeway unnoticed, I could have lurked in the water beneath its projecting timbers, and perhaps made my way along the main shore, as I had known fugitive slaves to do, while coming from that side. Or, had there been any ripple on the water, to confuse the aroused and watchful eyes, I could have made a circuit and approached the causeway at another point, though I had already satisfied myself that there was only a narrow channel on each side of it, even at high tide, and not, as on our side, a broad expanse of water. Indeed, this knowledge alone was worth all the trouble I had taken, and to attempt much more than this, in the face of a curiosity already roused, would have been a waste of future opportunities. I could try again with the benefit of this new knowledge on a point where the statements of the Negroes had always been contradictory. Resolving, however, to continue the observation a little longer, since the water felt much warmer than I had expected, and there was no sense of chill or fatigue, I grasped at some wisps of straw or rushes that floated nearby, gathering them around my face a little, and then drifting nearer the wharf, in what seemed a sort of eddy, was able, without creating further alarm, to make some additional observations on points, which it is not best now to particularize. Then turning my back upon the mysterious shore, which had thus far lured me, I sank slowly below the surface, and swam as far as I could, under water. During this unseen retreat, I heard, of course, all manner of gurglings and hollow reverberations, and could fancy as many rifle shots as I pleased. But on rising to the surface, all seemed quiet, and even I did not create as much noise as I should have expected. I was now at a safe distance, since the enemy were always chary of showing their boats, and always tried to convince us they had none. What with absorbed attention first, and this submersion afterwards, I had lost all my bearings but the stars, having been long out of sight of my original point of departure. However, the difficulties of the return were nothing. Making a slight allowance for the flood-tide, which could not yet have turned, I should soon regain the place I had left. So I struck out freshly against the smooth water, feeling just a little stiffened by the exertion, and with the occasional chill running up the back of my neck, but with no nips from sharks, no nudges from alligators, and not a symptom of the fever and arg time I could not, of course, measure. One never can in a novel position, but after a reasonable amount of swimming I began to look with a natural interest for the pier which I had quitted. I noticed with some solicitude that the woods along the friendly shore made one continuous shadow, and that the line of low bushes on the long causeway could scarcely be relieved against them, yet I knew where they ought to be, and the more doubtful I felt about it, the more I put down my doubts, as if they were unreasonable children." one can scarcely conceive of the alteration made in familiar objects by bringing the eye as low as the horizon, especially by night. To distinguish the foreshortening is impossible, 
and every low, near object is equivalent to one higher and more remote. Still I had the stars, and soon my eye, more practised, was enabled to select one precise line of bushes as that which marked the causeway, and for which I must direct my course. As I swam steadily, but with some sense of fatigue towards this phantom line, I found it difficult to keep my faith steady and my progress true. Everything appeared to shift and waver in the uncertain light. The distant trees seemed not trees but bushes, and the bushes seemed not exactly bushes but might, after all, be distant trees. Could I be so confident that, out of all this low stretch of shore, I could select the one precise point where the friendly causeway stretched its long arm to receive me from the water? How easily, some tempter whispered at my ear, might one swerve a little on either side, and be compelled to flounder over half a mile of oozy marsh on an ebbing tide, before reaching our own shore and that hospitable volley of bullets with which it would probably greet me? Had I not already, thus the tempter continued, been swimming rather unaccountably far, supposing me on a straight track for that inviting spot, where my sentinels and my drapery were awaiting my return. Suddenly I felt a sensation of fine ribbons drawn softly across my person, and I found myself among some rushes. But what business had rushes there, or I among them? I knew that there was not a solitary spot of shoal in the deep channel where I supposed myself swimming, and it was plain in an instant that I had somehow missed my course, and must be getting among the marshes. I felt confident, to be sure, that I could not have widely erred, but was guiding my course for the proper side of the river, but whether I had drifted above or below the causeway, I had not the slightest clue to tell. I pushed steadily forward, with some increasing sense of lassitude, passing one marshy islet after another, all seeming strangely out of place, and sometimes just reaching out with my foot a soft tremulous shoal, which gave scarce the shadow of a support, though even that shadow rested my feet. At one of these moments of stillness, it suddenly occurred to my perception, what nothing but this slight contact could have assured me in the darkness, that I was in a powerful current, and that this current set the wrong way. Instantly a flood of new intelligence came. Either I had unconsciously turned, and was rapidly nearing the rebel shore, a suspicion which with a glance at the stars corrected, or else it was the tide itself which had turned, and which was sweeping me down the river with all its force, and was also sucking away at every moment the narrowing water from that treacherous expanse of mud out of whose horrible miry embrace I had lately helped to rescue a shipwrecked crew. Either alternative was rather formidable. I can distinctly remember that for about one half minute the whole vast universe appeared to swim in the same watery uncertainty in which I floated. I began to doubt everything, to distrust the stars, the line of low bushes for which I was wearily striving, the very land on which they grew. If such visionary things could be rooted anywhere. Doubts trembled in my mind like the weltering water, and that awful sensation of having one's feet unsupported, which benumbs the spent swimmer's heart, seemed to clutch at mine, though not yet to enter it. I was more absorbed in that singular sensation of nightmare, such as the one may feel equally when one lost by land or by water, as if one's own position were all right, but the place looked for had been somehow preternaturally abolished out of the universe. At best, might not a man in the water lose all his power of direction, and so move in an endless circle until he sank exhausted? It required a deliberate and conscious effort to keep my brain quite cool. 
I had not the reputation of being of an excitable temperament, but the contrary. Yet I could at that moment see my way to a condition in which one might become insane in an instant. It was as if a fissure opened somewhere, and I saw my way into a madhouse. Then it closed, and everything went on as before. Once in my life I had obtained a slight glimpse of the same sensation, and then too, strangely enough, while swimming, in the mightiest ocean surge into which I had ever dared plunge my mortal body. Keats hints at the same sudden emotion in a wild poem written among the Scottish mountains. It was not the distinctive sensation which drowning men are said to have, that spasmodic passing in review of one's whole personal history. I had no well-defined anxiety, felt no fear, was moved to no prayer, did not give a thought to home or friends. Only it swept over me, as with a sudden tempest, that if I meant to get back to my own camp, I must keep my wits about me. I must not dwell on any other alternative, any more than a boy who climbs a precipice must look down. Imagination had no business here. That way madness lay. There was a shore somewhere before me, and I must get to it, by the ordinary means, before the ebb laid bare the flats, or swept me below the lower bends of the stream. That was all. Suddenly a light gleamed for an instant before me, as if from a house in a grove of great trees upon a bank, and I knew that it must come from the window of a ruined plantation building, where our most advanced outposts had their headquarters. The flash revealed to me every point of the situation. I saw at once where I was, and how I got there, and the tide had turned while I was swimming, and with a much briefer interval of slack water than I had been led to suppose. That I had been swept a good way downstream, and was far beyond all possibility of regaining the point I had left. Could I, however, retain my strength to swim one or two hundred yards further, of which I had no doubt, and if the water did not ebb too rapidly, of which I had more fear, then I was quite safe. Every stroke took me more and more out of the power of the current, and there might be an eddy to aid me. I could not afford to be carried much further, for there the channel made a sweep towards the wrong side of the river, and there was now no reason why I should not reach land. I could dismiss all fear, indeed, except for that of being fired upon by our own sentinels, many of whom were then new recruits, and with the usual disposition to shoot first and investigate afterwards. I found myself swimming in shallow and shallower water, and the flat seemed almost bare where I neared the shore, where the great gnarled branches of the live oaks hung over the muddy bank. Floating on my back for noiselessness, I paddled rapidly with my hands, expecting momentarily to hear the challenge of the picket, and the ominous click so likely to follow. I knew that someone should be pacing to and fro along that beat, but could not tell at what point he might be at that precise moment. Besides, there was the faint possibility that some chatty corporal might have carried the news of my bath thus far along the line, and they might be partially prepared for this unexpected visitor. Suddenly, like another flash, came the quick, quaint challenge. Halt! Who go dar? F-f-friend, with the c-c-countersign, I retorted, with chilly but conciliatory energy rising at full length out of the shallow water to show myself a man and a brother. Advance, friend, and give de countersign, responded the literal soldier, who at such a tune would have accosted a spirit of light or goblin damned with no other formula. I advanced and gave it. He recognized my voice at once. And then and there, as I stood, a dripping ghost, beneath the trees before him, the unconscionable fellow, wishing to exhaust upon me the utmost resources of military hospitality, 
deliberately presented arms. Now, a soldier on picket, or at night, usually presents arms to nobody, but a sentinel on camp guard by day is expected to perform that ceremony to anything in human shape that has two rows of buttons. Here was a human shape, but so utterly buttonless that it exhibited not even a rag to which a button could by any earthly possibility be appended, buttonless even potentially, and my blameless Ethiopian presented arms to even this. Where, then, are the theories of Carlyle, the axioms of Cytoresius, the inability of humanity to conceive a naked Duke of Windlestraw addressing a naked House of Lords? Cautioning my adherent, however, as to do proprieties suitable for such occasion thenceforward, I left him watching the river with renewed vigilance, and awaiting the next merman who should report himself. Finding my way to the building, I hunted up a sergeant and a blanket, got a fire kindled in the dismantled chimney, and sat before it in my single garment, like a moist but undismayed Choctaw, until horse and clothing could be brought round from the causeway. It seemed strange that the morning had not yet dawned, after the uncounted periods that must have elapsed, but when the wardrobe arrived, I looked at my watch, and found that my night in the water had lasted precisely one hour. Galloping home, I turned in with the clarity, and without a drop of whisky, and waked a few hours after in excellent condition. The rapid changes of which that department has seen so many, and perhaps to so little purpose, soon transferred us to a different scene. I have been on other scouts since then, and by various processes, but never with a zest so novel as was afforded by that night's experience. The thing got wind in the regiment, and led to only one ill consequence, so far as I know. It rather suppressed a way I had of lecturing the officers on the importance of reducing their personal baggage to a minimum. They got a trick of congratulating me very respectfully on the thoroughness with which I had conformed my practice to my precepts. End of chapter 6 Recording by FNH Visit www.bookranger.co.uk